Every Monday afternoon, I open up the scriptures to the text that we're going to be learning from that following Sunday. And this past Monday was not different. I went to Nehemiah chapter 3. And typically what I do to start my week of preparation is I'll read through the text slowly a few times, get a general sense of what it's about, and then I might visit some of the study Bible notes just initially to kind of get some parameters for what's happening in the text. And this week when I went to my study Bible notes, the very first thing that I read about Nehemiah chapter 3 was this sentence. Nehemiah chapter 3 is one of the least interesting chapters in the entire Bible. (laughs) That really pumps you up as a preacher, like I can't wait to preach this passage. So the challenge I realized immediately was obvious. It's to preach, is to not preach one of the most uninteresting sermons you've ever heard. But the reason why Nehemiah 3 is relatively uninteresting is because it's basically a collection of names. But in these names, we're going to learn some really interesting, I think, important things. And where we left off, we're in week four of our series through Nehemiah, and where we left off was Nehemiah, who was an exile, a Jewish exile, who was under the control of Persian rulers. He served in the courts as a cupbearer. He got word of what was happening in Jerusalem, that the gates were down and the walls were not rebuilt, and it became a burden in his heart. That was week one, leaders have a burden. And then we realized that as he began to feel that burden, he made a plan, and the plan was that he needed to get back to Jerusalem to do something about it. He asked the king, and the king sent him, and the king didn't just send him, but he sent him with a military escort, and he sent him with all the lumber that he would need to rebuild the walls and the gates and his own residence. And Nehemiah gets back to Jerusalem, and he rests for about three days, and then in the middle of the night, he takes a small group of men, and he goes and he surveys The walls. He wants to see what are we really dealing with. Max Dupree says that the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. And that's what he's doing. He wants to know what is the situation. He sees what's happened and then he gathers the leaders together and he begins to cast vision, which was our second week that leaders bring vision. And his vision was this, look at how faithful God has been, the ways in which God has prepared me and us for this moment, so let's build the wall. Nehemiah could see the wall before it was actually there because leaders have vision. Last week, Pastor Jason did a great job talking to you about how leaders have a heart for people and care for people. But this morning, what we're going to see is that leaders build teams. Leaders build teams. I want to read to you verse 1 and 2 of uh, this chapter 3, this least interesting chapter in the Bible, and it begins this way. There's lots of names in this, and I'm just going to give them a go, and let's just assume I'm saying them right, all right? Uh, Eliashib, the high priest, and the other priests started to rebuild at the Sheep Gate. They dedicated it and set up its doors, building the wall as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and the Tower of Hananel. And then it goes on to say that people from the towns of Jericho worked next to them, and beyond them was Zachar, son of Imri. All right, and on and on and on. This is the rest of the chapter, just names you cannot pronounce, doing work on a wall. And it seems like a very ordinary chapter. Like, why is this even included in the scriptures? But when we look closer, we realize that this ordinary list of names actually reveals to us something extraordinary. And what we see here is that it takes a team to accomplish God's work. No individual on their own can accomplish the work that God wants to do in a specific place at a specific time. God always works in teams. Think about Jesus. If anyone could have justified not having a team, and believe me, his team was, uh, slowed him down more than it sped him up. 
But if anyone could have justified not having a team, it was the very Son of God. But Jesus Christ, we read it this morning. You know, we're reading through the Gospels in 90 days. This morning we're in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus calls his first disciples. He calls them and says, come and follow me. And if Jesus refused to do life alone, if he refused to follow the Father's will on his own, then shouldn't we also look to be a part of teams? It takes a team to do God's work. And Nehemiah knew this. Before Nehemiah built a wall, he built a team. And chapter 3 shows us this team. Now, when you think about teams, what comes to mind or who comes to mind? The best teams ever. I think of those uh, late 90s Yankee teams. I thought those are some of the best teams ever. The, the early 90s Bulls teams with Michael Jordan. Those are some great teams. I, I'm a sports fan. So when I think of teams, I think of sports. How about this team, the 1980 USA hockey team? The miracle on ice. These amateur hockey players winning the gold medal despite the fact that they were in way over their heads. And there's a movie out there, a great movie out there, I think it's called Miracle, about this story. And you see how they become a, uh, they, they go from being a bunch of individuals to becoming a team. And when individuals will lay down their egos and work together, there's nothing that they can't accomplish. Here's another great team, 1992. This is the dream team. This is the first time America sent professionals to the Olympics. And you got arguably just right here, three of the greatest basketball players in the history of the game with Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, and Magic Johnson. And this team was relatively untested that year because they were so dominant. And I think, I remember this team, maybe they're not as broadly known or talked about, but 1996, this team was called the Magnificent Seven. Do you remember this team? This was the USA women's gymnastics team. And the Olympics were in America that summer. They were actually being hosted in Atlanta. And it was a big deal. This was a great team. And I'll never forget the moment that this gymnast, her name was Carrie Strug, when she landed on a, I think it might have been a broken ankle, but certainly a busted ankle, landed a jump off the vault to secure the gold medal for this team. And everyone was like, what a team. But maybe you don't think of sports. Maybe you think of, uh, maybe if you're a young person, you think of the Avengers, right? That's a, that's a pretty great team. Here's some other teams from fiction that I think of sometimes. I mean, that's a great team right there. I mean, they destroyed the Death Star a couple times. They saved us from destruction. There they are, the Star Wars crew, a great team. Here's another great team, uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, destroying the ring that was going to destroy us all. But if you're a child of the 80s like I am, then you know that the greatest team ever was this team. Come on. (laughs) You can't beat Mouth and Mikey and Chunk and Data. You can't beat them. This, these goonies, this was the best team ever. Joking a little bit. But whatever you think of when you think of teams, all of us have some experience being part of a team. And what I would say to you this morning, and this morning's message is going to be actually quite different than most weeks because the text is quite different than most weeks. Um, but what I'm hoping is that you'll learn something that will help you in whatever team situation you find yourself. Some of you are on teams at work. You rely on other people. You have a boss. You have people that rely on you, people that report to you, that answer to you. You're, you're a part of a team. Some of you maybe are part of a sports team, students, or a team in your school. Uh, if you're in a family, that's a team, right? People working together towards a common goal, even if the common goal is not hating each other, right? But you're, you're working together towards a common goal. Whatever, wherever you find yourself, most of us have experienced some sort of experience of being on a team. If you're in a neighborhood, if you're in a community, you're part of a team. And so I think there'll be something for you this morning. Some of you, I know what you do at work, and you lead teams. And I hope what you hear this morning will help you challenge your teammates 
uh, to be better. And then also, if none of that applies to you, we are all a part of God's family. And this is a team. And we're working together towards a common goal and a common purpose. And so this morning, I want to just show you six things that we learn in Nehemiah 3 about great teams. Uh, what are great teams made up of? And the first thing we'll see is that great teams are made up of people who will work outside of their comfort zone. Outside of their comfort zone. I want you to see this passage in Nehemiah 3, verse 8. It says, Uziel, the son of Har-Har-Har, however you say his name, uh, uh, a goldsmith by trade who also worked on the wall. Beyond him was Hananiah, manufacturer of perfumes. Now this really jumped out at me because these guys... They're building a wall, they're rebuilding a city, but as far as we can tell, they have no education, no training, no mentorship, no apprenticeship in doing this. They're not construction workers. What are they? Well, one of them is a goldsmith by trade, which, I mean, at least he works with his hands, but it's not the same thing as building a wall. And the other one is a manufacturer of perfumes. And this is not like the perfume that you and I think of nowadays, because back then with no running water, perfume was not so that you would smell extra nice. Perfume was so that you would smell normal, right? So, so perfume was really important. So these guys had important jobs. And, and when Nehemiah said, we got to rebuild the wall, they could have very easily said, well, hold on, not these hands. These are, these are indoor hands. <laughs> these are perfume-making hands. And my job is really important, especially you guys are going to be working hard, sweating hard. You're going to need me more than ever. Don't put me at the wall. But instead, what you see is they roll up their sleeves and they say, I'm going to work outside of my comfort zone. Comfort zone is defined by what we're asked to do, when we're asked to do it, and who we are asked to do it with. And these men were asked to do something they weren't comfortable with, and they were asked to do it immediately. There was no hesitation. All of Israel pulled together. And they were asked to do it shoulder to shoulder with people that they might not have known. In fact, many times in this chapter, there's the phrase, they work next to. And there's a lot of names in this chapter, and they're not all Jewish names. There's some exotic names. There's some non-Jewish names. And so people are working next to people they don't otherwise know, they wouldn't normally work with, but they're willing to work outside of their comfort zone. And great teams are filled with people who will work outside of their comfort zones. Yes, caveat, I 100% believe that good leaders put people in the best spot for their success. I believe that. You get them on the bus, you get them in the right seat, and it helps you move forward as a team. But I also believe that good team members are willing to step out of their comfort zone at times if it's for the good of the team. And we all have comfort zones, right? Things that if you want me to preach a sermon... I'm comfortable, but build, build and put together a sermon, absolutely. But if you want me to build and put together some steps, absolutely not. I'm very uncomfortable, and you will be very uncomfortable trying to walk up and down them as well. It won't be a good thing. We all have our comfort zone. And here's how I want to apply this for us this morning. Some of you have been a part of our church family for years, and you're very comfortable where you serve and how you serve, and we're very grateful for where you serve and how you serve, but is it possible that stepping out of the familiar and stretching yourself and trying to serve in a new ministry in a new way, you'll discover something? Wow, God's given me this gift as well, or given me a heart for this. Listen, everything at some point in your life was new to you. The things that are easiest for you now were hard for you once. I try to teach my daughters this all the time with sports. Oh, it's so hard. Lilia plays lacrosse. It's so hard to catch and throw with my left hand. Yes, it is now but it won't be a year from now. And sure enough, she's learned. Now she's very good with her left hand. But it wasn't that way always. It was very hard at first. She didn't want to do it. And sometimes I think the familiar and the comfortable rob us of what God actually has for us. 
And so maybe there's some things even in your workplace, in your life, maybe there's some interests that you've, you've sort of let go dormant in your own heart and you've thought, well, I don't know, it's kind of risky. You know, sometimes we have to step out of our comfort zone. And when we step out of our comfort zone, sometimes we'll find that we've stepped right into what God has ordained for us. Don't say to yourself, no, 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 I'm a goldsmith. I'm a perfume maker. You guys build the wall. I'll do my thing. There's times where everybody has to step up and do things out of their comfort zone. And in doing so, you'll learn more about yourself, and you also get connected with people that you otherwise would not have connected with. Second thing we learn in Nehemiah 3 is that good teams are made up of people who work beyond others' expectations. So many of us, I'll speak for myself, so much of my life, I do just like what's necessary, but I'm not always interested in going above and beyond. Chores, just what's necessary. Schoolwork, just enough to get the grade, right? Relationships, I'll show up, but I'm, I'm just showing up, right? Going beyond the expectations of others. And we see it in this story in a really interesting verse. Speaking of this man named Shalom, Shalom, son of Halalhesh, and his daughters repaired the next section. And, and Nehemiah, this sticks out in his mind because of this phrase, and his daughters, in this society, in this culture, the daughters would never have gone out and done manual labor. That was the work reserved for the men at this time in history. The daughters had other things that they would tend to and that they would take care of. So it was very notable to Nehemiah. Oh, my goodness, I remember this get dad because I remember walking by and seeing his, even his daughters. So there were societal expectations on the women at that time, but the daughters wanted to be a part of the team, and they pushed past the expectations. of. They could have easily sat back and said, hey, this is not our responsibility. This is the men's job. It's not my job. But they wanted to be a part of the team, and they stepped out. The best teams are filled with people who will go above and beyond. And if you want to be a blessing to your team leader at work or wherever you work, go above and beyond. Don't just show up. And Christians, I think, should, should set the standard for this. As, as people who have been saved by God and have been given a good work to do for God's glory, we should go above and beyond at our workplace. The right mentality is this. It may not be my job. It may not be my problem. It may not be my responsibility. But I'm not here to give the bare minimum. I'm not here just to barely meet expectations. I want to go beyond the expectations of other people and bless them and surprise them. At work, how do you work? Do you do the bare minimum? Are you looking for ways to go beyond even what your boss, what, it's not on my job description. That's okay. Because good team members go above and beyond and they surpass the expectations of others. In your relationships, how do you surprise people that you've been in a relationship with for years, been married for years, had a brother or sister for years? How can you show up today and tomorrow at family gatherings and do something that goes even beyond their expectations? How can you serve your neighbors in a way that surprises them and goes beyond their expectations of a Christian? These are the opportunities we have when we're committed to the team, to work beyond others' expectations. The third thing that we learn in this chapter is that good teammates work through conflict. There's no team without conflict, right? Always going to be conflict because we're all really annoying. I mean, that's ultimately what it comes down to. We're all selfish. We all want our way. We all trust our opinion more than anyone else's opinion in the room. We're difficult to work with. We're insecure. All these things that could go on and on because I feel all of them in me were hard to work with. And so there's always going to be conflict. In verse 5 of Nehemiah 3, Nehemiah says, Next were the people from Tekoa, though their leaders refused to work 
with the construction supervisors. Now does this sound like your workplace? People unwilling to work together. And I think Nehemiah, at first you could say, oh, see, there was conflict. But what's most amazing is that this is the only conflict Nehemiah remembers. The whole chapter is written in such a way that the building of the wall starts in the northeast corner at the Sheep Gate, and the entire chapter goes, goes geographically counterclockwise, like this for me, but like this for you, counterclockwise around the gates and all the way, and that's how Nehemiah structures chapter 3. And so he's talking about the every single part of the wall, and only in one occasion does he remember that there was conflict. It's amazing the unity that God brought as his team worked together. But there will be conflict. Working together is hard. We bother each other. We frustrate each other. And anytime you get a new job and you go in with, you know, kind of like all these expectations that it's going to be amazing or you make new friends or you get connected with a new family through a marriage or something and you're like, this is going to be amazing or you join a new church and then you realize, oh my goodness, these people are like everybody else. They bother me sometimes. And, and, and I tell people sometimes in our, in our Discover Trinity class, if you're going to really be built in here, like if you're really going to be a part of our church family, really be a part of our team, eventually there's going to be conflict. There's no way around it. Someone's going to offend you. Someone's going to annoy you. Someone's going to post something on Facebook. It's going to make you block them. Like, some, eventually something like that is going to happen. The question is, how do we move through conflict as a team? Because conflict's not the enemy. In fact, in all the premarital and marriage counseling that I've done in my life, when there's no conflict, that's a problem. That means somebody's getting walked on. Conflict is not the enemy. Conflict handled poorly is the enemy. And one of the things that gets us through conflict is a a shared goal, right? And so when you think of that 1992 dream team, you look at those 12 players. Those guys were all the best on their team. These are superstars. These are legends. At least half of them are probably in the list of the 50 best players in the history of the NBA. And yet some of those guys who were superstars sat the bench for most of the game watching other guys. How do they do that with those massive egos and with that sense of entitlement? Because they shared this goal, we're bringing the gold. Ben, we're going to bring the gold medal back to America. Whatever it takes. If I just got to sit here and grab, or if I got to go and grab rebounds for five minutes, if I don't score a single basket, but all I got to do is play defense. They laid their egos down. Some of the biggest egos ever to walk on a court: Jordan, uh, Bird, and and Johnson. And they laid them down for the good of the team. We got to work through conflict. Now, when navigating conflict, I want to give you a, a, a few. Uh, very practical things to do. Anyone ever have to navigate conflict in their lives, in their homes, at their work, on their team? Five of you. This will be good for you five. All right. The rest of you, you can tune out for a little while. Here, here's, here's some quick tips, right? And if, if this is too fast for you to write down and you want this, I'll email it to you. Number one, in conflict, the number one goal is to keep the space safe. As soon as the space in which the conversation is happening does not feel safe to both people or both parties, conflict cannot be properly resolved. Number two, you got to name the issue and be as specific as you can. This is what we're having conflict over. I don't need you to raise your hand, husbands and wives, but how many times have you been in a fight and 10 minutes in you're like, what are we even fighting about? We can't even remember anymore. you got to name what the conflict is about. Number three, you have to ask each other, what do you want out of this? And you got to find something that you both want out of it that's the same. And you got to hold on to that. That's going to be your true north in conflict. You're going to keep going back to that. We both want this. Let's not forget. We both want this. Put down the knife. We both want this. Right? That that sort of stuff. (laughs) Number four, sometimes in conflict, before you say what you want, you have to say what you don't want. 
Sometimes you have to say what you aren't saying first. So in other, in other words, it might sound like this. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying I don't want to be a part of the team. I'm not saying I'm looking to quit. I'm not saying I don't believe in what we're about. And what you're doing is you're taking some big things off the table so that the other person can actually hear what you want to say. Because until you tell them what you aren't saying, sometimes they don't hear what you are saying because they're waiting for the other shoe to drop. They're waiting for you to drop the big one on them. I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this, and so I'm quitting. By saying up front, I'm not saying this, it allows them to actually hear you well. Here's another big thing you have to do in conflict, and this is so hard for human beings to do. We have to separate observation from interpretation and then from narrative. Let me explain. Observation. This is what I saw. You walked by me at work today and you didn't say hi. Interpretation. You hate my guts and you never want to talk to me again. That's not a fact. That's an interpretation, right? You know the difference. This is what you saw. This is what you interpreted. And then we, as human beings, we immediately build a narrative. We're storytellers. We tell ourselves a story about what we just saw, what we interpreted, and it always lands in. And then when we lean into conflict, this is how we lean into conflict. We go into conflict with our stories, not with our observations. It's very hard to argue with someone's story. It's a very fruitless way to argue. So clarify. Tell me exactly what you saw. Okay. Now let's talk about how you interpreted that. Okay. And, and now, what, is, what do you think that meant? The story that you're telling yourself. But if you can get back to the observation stage, it'll help you navigate conflict better. You have to be able to, and this is, this is I, I think you can only do this through the gospel, but you have to distance your identity from the issue. You have to know your worth is separate from the issue on the table. Otherwise, you cannot talk honestly about it. Uh, use I statements instead of you statements. And then if the conflict resolution is not going well, stop, agree to separate, and come back and talk later. But don't just run off. Make an agreement, a shared agreement. Hey, uh, together, like, we're not making progress. We're both frustrated. Let's take a 15-minute break, go our separate ways, come back together, and let's try again. And then lastly, guard your heart, because that's the real thing at risk in conflict. So there's, there's nine quick things to help you navigate conflict, and it takes a lot of work to do this. But conflict is a part of being a part of a team, and teams work through conflict. Number four, teams work with passion. You know, like... You can tell when someone has passion for what they do. You know, and you can tell when someone doesn't have passion for what they do. You go into a restaurant and you, you have a waiter or waitress that just loves serving people, and you just experience that. You're just like, man, this person loves what they're doing. And then you go into a restaurant where you feel like you've, you've ruined their day by showing up. <laughs> like, like you've intruded upon them. Like, aren't you here to do this? Like, and, and they're angry at you because you're asking them to do their job. You can tell when someone loves what they do and when they don't love what they do. And in this passage, there's this interesting uh, observation Nehemiah makes, Baruch, son of Zabri, and he, uh, Zabbi, who zealously repaired an additional section from the angle to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. And this is the only time in the whole chapter that I think that Nehemiah uses an adverb to describe the way in which the work is done. And this guy, Baruch, he, he is zealously repairing the wall. I sat there for a minute when I was studying. I was like, what did that look like? Like, was he whistling while he worked? Was he working super fast? Was he just, like, loving life? I pictured, like, if you've seen the movie Wreck-It Ralph, I pictured Fix-It Felix just running around with his little hammer. I can fix it. I can fix it. Like, that's kind of what I, what I pictured maybe this was like. I don't know what Nehemiah saw, but he saw something that made him think back later and go, oh, yeah, Baruch. Boy, he was zealous. <laughs> 
He was really into his work. He was really passionate about it. And that's the first thing we learn about passion is passion is noticed. If you have passion about what you do, it could be the passion of cooking a steak this afternoon. It could be the passion of of building a house. It could be the passion of writing a paper or designing something. But when you have passion, people can feel that passion. They see that passion. And teams need people with passion on them who believe in what they're doing and believe in the gift that God has given them. So passion is noticeable. But number two, passion doesn't always show up the same. Extroverts tend to show their passion gregariously and loudly, and you know when they're passionate. But introverts, their passion is more focused and intense and devoted in some ways, right? So you got to recognize that passion shows up differently. Don't assume just because somebody doesn't look like you, they don't have the same level of passion that you have. So it's noticeable. It It shows up differently. But lastly, passion is contagious. You pass it on. And teams need people with passion and excitement and energy. And here's a question for you. Do you bring passion to your workplace, to the teams that you're on, the ministries that you serve in? What about when we walk in and gather as a church? Do we have a passion to worship, a passion to encourage one another, a passion to edify each other, a passion to reach this community? Passion is contagious. Work with passion. Two more. We see that they worked for each other, not just for themselves. And for this, we got to jump to the next chapter. Nehemiah chapter 4 uh, there's some enemies that are threatening the Jewish people. They're saying, we're going to attack you and destroy your walls. And so look what Nehemiah does. He comes up with a new plan. He says, from then on, only half of my men worked, while the other half stood guard with spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. So I want you to picture this. There are people, half the men are now building the wall, while the other half of the men are standing behind those men, armed and ready to fight if someone comes and attacks them. The laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load and one hand holding a weapon. Verse 18, all the builders had a sword belted to their side. The trumpeter stayed with me to sound the alarm. And so Nehemiah, being a great leader, comes up with a great plan so that the work doesn't have to stop, but so that they're also safe. And what we learn here is that great teams will protect each other. They'll work for each other. They literally had each other's back here in Nehemiah chapter 4. But great teams have each other's back. Look out for each other. Families that are great teams, they have each other's back. Churches have each other's back. Workplaces, listen, what we're talking about is trust. And the number one thing that destroys teams is a lack of trust. You've probably experienced this. If you don't trust your boss, it's hard to go to battle for them or him or her, right? If people don't trust you, it will become obvious. If there's no trust, there's no team. There's no chance of a team if there's no trust. And these men, they trusted each other with their very lives. They worked for each other. The question before us this morning is, can people trust you to do your job? Can people trust you to support them in their workplace when when possible? Can people trust you to speak well of them when they're not around? And to be honest, we have to work for each other. And as a church, we have to work for each other. We have to look out for each other, protect each other, encourage each other. When someone falls, we restore each other in mercy. We don't tear each other down. We don't speak badly or poorly of each other, but we speak life to each other. And we see the best in each other because we're a team who work for each other. And the last thing this morning, and the band's going to come now, is that great teams work for the right reasons. The right reasons. I want to go back to the beginning of the chapter. Verse 1, let's see it again. Eliashib, the high priest, and the other priests started to rebuild at the sheep gate, and they dedicated it and set up its doors. 
Now, why did Nehemiah start where he started in the northeast corner of the wall at the Sheep Gate? And we don't know for sure, but I think Nehemiah is speaking to us about our priorities, working for the right reason. Because the priests were the ones who went on the behalf of the people to God to present the offerings for the forgiveness of their sins. And the priests were the ones who dedicated this rebuilding of the walls and the gates to God. And right from the beginning, Nehemiah was saying, we're not going to do a work that is not set apart for God, dedicated to him. And whatever line of work, whatever career, whatever you do, your work can be dedicated to God. Whether you're teaching students, whether you're serving burgers, whether you are uh, a doctor, whether you're an engineer, whether, whatever you do, whether you work at home, work from home, your work can be dedicated to God because everything that you do to do your work came from God. The mind that you have, the physical abilities that you have, those are, and right from the beginning, Nehemiah is saying, this God, this is from you and it's for you and we dedicate ourselves to you and we work not for our glory, but for your glory and for the good of the city. And that's still the reason why we do good work today, whether it's work inside the church or outside the church, not for my glory, but for the glory of God and for the good of others. And it was at the Sheep Gate. And the Sheep Gate is significant because this is where, it's probably called the Sheep Gate because this is where they would bring sheep in to be sacrificed. In through the gate, into the city for the sacrifice of the forgiveness of the sins of the people. But about four to 500 years later, Jesus, the true and better sheep, the Lamb of God, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, he wasn't dragged inside the walls of the city. He was marched outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And he was marched up a hill and he was now to a cross where he did the one work that you and I cannot do. He provided the substitutionary sacrifice for our sin and our shame. And he also gave us the gift of his substitutionary righteousness. His life, his perfection is given to those who trust fully and solely in him. And when we received his work, now we're free to do our work for the right reasons. One of my favorite illustrations of this comes from the movie Chariots of Fire. It's about two Olympian athletes, Harold Abram, an English sprinter, and Eric Little, a Scottish long-distance runner. And as they were preparing for the Olympics, they both were great runners, and they both won the gold medal that year. Eric Little was a devout Christian, and he became a missionary to China where he died at the age of 43 from a brain tumor. Harold Abram may have been a religious man, but he, was not, he did not have a personal relationship with Jesus as far as we know. And as they were getting ready for these Olympic Games, the journalist asked both of them the same question, why do you run? Why do you run? Which, honestly, I ask that of anyone who runs. Why do, you, why do you want run? Why would you, if you're not being chased, what are you running for? But why do you run? And they gave two very different answers. And Harold Abram, the English sprinter, said that I run because when that gun goes off, that starter pistol, when the gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence on earth. A 10-second race to prove myself, to earn something, to validate the space I take up. That's working for your own glory. That's working under a lot of pressure. And they asked Eric Little, the Christian, the same question. And Eric Little said, I run because God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And I love that. Because I think that's the secret to doing work well, whether it's on a team or whatever work God has given you to do. 
You know, I have to ask myself as a pastor, why do I preach every Sunday morning? Is it because every Sunday morning I have 30 minutes to justify my existence on earth? 30 minutes to make you smile, make you laugh, make you think, make you feel? Or do I preach because God made me a preacher? And when I preach, I can feel his pleasure. Can you feel God's pleasure in your work? Whatever you're doing, God gave you the gift and the ability and the means to do so. So whatever it is, and I'm looking around this room and I'm thinking of all the things that I know that all of you do, and every single one of you can do it and experience the pleasure of God when you do it, not for your glory, but for his glory and for the good of others. And God invites us to do that work for him, and usually he invites us to do it on a team. Let's pray together.